You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A universe of Hollywood storytelling and intrigue awaits you now. Unlock the secret history of Hollywood by going to patreon.com slash attaboysecret or follow the link in the show notes of this episode. It was during the theatrical run of the stage show Pitter-Patter that 16-year-old Willard Vernon noticed the shy, studious young man in the storeroom, rehearsing a dance routine on his own. Being named Willard wasn't necessarily a bad thing for a 16-year-old boy in 1920, but for this particular Willard, it had been a problem since birth, because this particular Willard was a 16-year-old farm girl from Iowa. My parents had four girls, she said, and I was the last in an accident, I guess. They had a boy's name all ready for the next one, but I was a girl, so they called me Willard anyway. I had to do something about that when I left home, so I chose the name Francis and added it on. I had a book about Francis E. Willard, who knocked down saloons, so I took Francis. It was as Francis Willard Vernon that she joined the cast of Pitter Patter, about the same time as the boy she was watching in the storeroom. From day one, he'd fascinated her. He seemed to be boundlessly energetic, whip-smart and so professional, always rehearsing on his own, always reading, always writing something. Often during downtime, she found herself seeking him out, following him to the private areas of the theatres, where he would while away the time on his own in some corner, or in some secluded space, dancing with his own shadow, or pacing back and forth as he read. He'd never noticed that. Or at least, so she thought. In actual fact, while waiting in the wings one afternoon, he'd been jabbed in the ribs by a fellow dancer who pointed to Francis Willard Vernon and asked what he thought. Jimmy Cagney gazed at the girl with her long, curled hair and ruffled dress decorated with countless ribbons and smiled. What do you know about that? He said quietly, all dressed up and let out for an hour. Being the youngest of five, Willard had long been taught the value in speaking her mind in order to get the thing she wanted. And so one night, with the performance done, she found herself asked by her fellow girls in the chorus if she'd be attending a party that night. It just so happened that across the room was Jimmy Cagney, busy with his chores. Sure, I'll go, she said loudly, but only if that red-haired boy will take me. The room fell silent and it took Jimmy a few minutes to realize that a few dozen eyes were upon him, awaiting his response. Sure, Ribbons, he grinned. I'll be your date. By the time the party was over, Jimmy and Willard had fallen in love. There were two slight problems, though. 
The first was that Willard had a boyfriend back in Iowa who was patiently waiting to marry her as soon as she'd gotten this damn acting thing out of her system. The second problem was that Jimmy had been dating a blonde-haired, blue-eyed beauty named Nellie Oliver for over four years, and not only was she much approved of by Jimmy's mother, but her father also happened to be the policeman that patrolled Jimmy's neighborhood. For a while, Jimmy tried to discreetly date them both, often rushing from a date with Nellie to a later one with Willard, whom he'd affectionately renamed Bill. This went on for some time until one night, Bill became suspicious when Jimmy tried to get away. Stealing out after he'd gone, Bill trailed Jimmy to Nellie's house and watched as they skipped off to dinner. The next evening, she confronted him where he confessed his dual relationships. In response, she picked up the photo of him that she kept on her dressing table and smashed it with her fist, then picked up a large jar of cold cream and hurled it at his head. Jimmy, used to dodging fists since his youth, ducked to one side as the jar erupted against the wall in a glutinous mess. You damn near killed me, he called. You damn well deserve it, you copper-headed bastard, she shouted back. They regarded each other for a long time in silence, and then Jimmy broke into a grin and began to laugh. From that moment on, he knew that he could never love another girl as much as he loved her. Within a week, Nellie Oliver's heart had been broken, along with that of a farm boy from Iowa. Soon afterwards, they received the news that Pitter Patter was to close, and desperate to stay together, they began to use their free moments rehearsing a double act they'd written so that they could remain together. But fate had other ideas. News arrived from Iowa that Bill's father had died, and Bill was forced to return home for the funeral. She arrived back at the family home, having spent her last cent to get there, and as days turned into weeks, a deep-rooted ache began to form in her heart a yawning pain that told her she must return to New York and Jimmy. But work was scarce, money was elusive, and her family were not eager for her to leave. At one point, Bill awoke in tears, convinced that the only way to return to Jimmy would be to hitchhike the entire 1,100 miles, and by the morning, she'd fully resolved to do so, even going so far as to pack a few things. It was that morning that Bill's sister told her that she was going to Chicago to do some shopping. Why didn't Bill come along with her? She could catch a show at Lowe's State Theatre while she shopped. Bill shrugged and jumped into the car. She could hitchhike tomorrow. I remember that the closing act was two girls who played the piano and sang, said Bill. When the show ended, I was coming out of the theatre and this woman came up behind me and tapped me on the shoulder. She said, are you a dancer? I said that I was. She asked me if I'd seen the last act and I said that I had. She told me that one of the girls had to leave the act and asked if I wanted to join the show. I said yes, right there and then. The moment remains something of a miracle. There was no reason why this woman, incidentally named Woodsy, and who would go on to become a close friend of Bill and Jimmy's, should have known that Bill was a dancer. Least of all that she was a dancer looking for a job, one that would take her far into the wilds of America, to the footlights of hundreds of different theatres, large and small, before finally arriving in New York, where Bill, of course, 
bade the production farewell and ran along the glittering, ignorant streets of New York City to the arms of Jimmy. Stage work had been lean since Bill had left, and with Harry and Edward at college, the pressure was on for Jimmy to bring in the bread for the Cagney family, especially as Jean was now two years old and eating solids. Although Carolyn Cagney could see that performing was in Jimmy's blood, she took every opportunity to dissuade him from the profession. It was an unreliable job, one that seemed to bring longer periods of hardship than it did joy. But Bill was determined too and leaping into action, took every chorus girl part she could find. She took a room at the Midtown boarding house owned by Madame Pichu, and gave every spare penny she had to Jimmy, so that he could continue to support his family. Don't give up, she told him. You were born to do this. You're the most talented man I've ever known. Money is nothing next to happiness. Please, don't give up on yourself, Jimmy. And very gradually... Bill began to build in Jimmy a will to succeed at this business. I knew Jimmy would become a success in show business, she said. There was this little piece in the paper about Pitter-Patter once that said, Watch this boy, he's good. I was always convinced that he had it. Work was fleeting and scattershot, but together... They made it through each month with enough left over to pay the bills and feed the Cagney family. Finally, one evening as Jimmy was dropping Bill off at Madame Pichu's boarding house, he grabbed her arm and said, Marry me, Bill. Okay, Jim, she said. Let's do it tomorrow. We went to City Hall, got the license and got married, said Jimmy. No great to do about it. On September 28, 1922, Francis Willard Vernon became Francis Willard Cagney. They moved her things from Madame Pichu's boarding house to the Cagney apartment and began married life under the altogether displeased eye of Carolyn Cagney. Work was scarce throughout the first half of the 20s and Jimmy and his wife starved on nickels and dimes they brought in from chorus line work dancing in a review for one or two nights, and even menial work in and around the theatres of New York. Bill found it easier to find work. Girls were in much higher demand than boys, a situation that stung Jimmy's pride each time they looked at their savings. He'd contributed so little to their nest egg, while Bill's talents were practically feeding his family. Refusing to be beaten, though, and with Bill's constant support, he persevered. Between performing jobs, he took backstage work, sometimes for the paltry sum of $3 a night. When the lean times kicked in hard, he would eat just once a day, generally a small bag of cookies, so that those living in the rest of the apartment would not go to sleep on empty stomachs. But the financial side wasn't the hardest part for Jimmy. For days at a time, sometimes weeks, depending on where the shows might take her, he found himself often separated from his wife. This small ball of fire, who always squeezed tight when she embraced him, and always smiled when he needed it most. One evening, having picked Bill up from her job at a theatre, they walked the many streets home, passing rows of storefronts along the way. 
At one particular store, he glanced inside and stopped. In the window, a long, dark winter coat had caught his eye. Bill, hanging from his arm, nuzzled her nose into his neck and said, Why don't you buy it? <laughs> you crazy? I couldn't afford that. You'd look so good in it. Jimmy sighed. Ah, oh, maybe when I'm a millionaire. Bill pressed a kiss into the back of his neck and ran into the store. A minute later, she emerged, the coat folded over her arm. Bowing slightly, she offered it to him. I want you to look handsome, she said. And that old jacket you're wearing kind of makes you look like a tramp. But I can't afford this. I can afford it, Bill smiled. Seriously, if you care about me, you'll throw that jacket away. Jimmy hesitated. Bill rolled her eyes. You can pay me back if you like. I will. I know you will, Mr. Proud Stuff. She swept the coat behind him and helped it onto Jimmy's shoulders. He gazed down at himself and then at his reflection in the window. Her face appeared above his shoulder. You look like a matinee idol, she said. Who ever heard of a matinee idol with red hair, he replied. He turned and placed a finger beneath her chin and lifted her face to his. Thank you, he said. I love you. Endlessly. Do you know that? It took Jimmy five years to pay back his wife in pennies and nickels. The ledger showing the ever-decreasing amount in tiny fractions. They kept as a reminder of the lean early twenties, when even the tiniest of sacrifices were monumental, and when a small bag of cookies seemed like a feast. As for the red hair, without it, he may never have turned his hand to dramatic acting. The writer Maxwell Anderson had written a stage comedy entitled Outside Looking In, based on a novel by Jim Tully about the lives of hobos. The leading role of Oklahoma Red was played by Charles Bickford, but the play also called for another redhead in a supporting role, that of Little Red. Word was sent out that Anderson and his producers, including Eugene O'Neill, were looking for a red-headed actor. As luck would have it, there were only two available performers around at the time, a struggling actor named Alan Bunce and another named James Cagney. Cagney waited outside while Bunce read for the producers and then took his turn. While he wasn't overly impressed with his acting talents, the producers were, and signed him to star in the role on the spot. I assume I got the role because my hair was redder than his, said Jimmy later. Despite the fact that he'd never attempted anything this serious before, he found that dramatic acting came naturally. The dramatic critic, writer and wit Robert Benchley wrote after seeing an early performance, Mr. Cagney, in a less spectacular role than that of the lead, Mr. Bickford, makes a few minutes of silence during his mock trial scene, something that many a more established actor might watch with profit. Burns Mantle, theatre critic for the Daily News, stated that Charles Bickford and Mr. James Cagney do the most honest acting now to be seen in New York. I believe that John Barrymore's effective performance of Hamlet would be a mere feast of elocution if compared to the characterization of either Mr. Bickford or Mr. Cagney both of whom are unknown. On top of the plaudits, the job paid handsomely $200 a week and gave Jimmy five months' employment, enough to support Bill through her current working drought and to further feather their nest egg. 
When the show closed, Jimmy was offered a place at the Theatre Guild, where the money was modest but steady, and would see him given a constant rush of dramatic roles, alongside other Guild members, including Edward G. Robinson. But dancing was in Jimmy's blood, and emboldened by his new financial security, he devised a new act for him and Bill, entitled Lonesome Manor, a short song and dance act about a newspaper boy who falls in love with a girl on a New York street corner. The act was an instant hit, and Jimmy and Bill found themselves quickly swept along on a vaudeville tour of the Midwest, where their downtime was spent partying with the likes of veteran dancer Harry Boyle, who spent hours running through Jimmy's routines with him, and legendary dancer Bill Bojangles Robinson, who insisted on taking Jimmy and Bill to dinner almost every evening. Robinson, in particular, inspired Jimmy to go further when it came to dancing, to be completely unafraid, and to never limit his imagination. He was the greatest showman I ever knew, said Jimmy. His dancing was simple, but very great. He had great style. One afternoon, Jimmy arrived at the offices of Chamberlain Brown, a theatrical agent who was in the middle of casting on behalf of one of New York's most legendary producers. Jimmy's name was called, and he entered to find not only Chamberlain Brown, but the legendary producer himself, leaning against the wall, and looking Jimmy up and down. I stepped into the office, said Jimmy, and there was George M. Cohan. Well, Chamberlain began to talk, and Cohan walked around behind me. When he got there, he must have given me the thumb, because I was dismissed there and then. Never saw him again. It was shortly afterwards that Jimmy was given his first real shot at the big time. George Abbott and Phil Dunning the man who'd cast Cagney in his first stage role, had written a play entitled Broadway, revolving around Roy Lane, a song and dance man, and his travais in and around Prohibition-era New York. Dunning wanted Jimmy in the role of Roy Lane, but the producer, Jed Harris, wanted Lee Tracy, and since he held the purse strings, Dunning had to play along. Broadway was a huge hit, and along with a touring version that went on to conquer the landmarks of America, work began on a London stage adaptation. Jimmy, who just finished a song and dance run, received a call from Phil Dunning, who told him to get over to the theatre for a tryout. After a brief initial conversation, Jed Harris was sold, and Jimmy was given the role of Roy Lane in the soon-to-travel London stage play of Broadway. His salary was $300 a week, and more importantly, Bill was given a part in the chorus, meaning that she could travel along with him. When rehearsals began, Jimmy was given a short brief. Play it like Lee Tracy plays it. Lee Tracy was no dancer, said Jimmy, and he had no first-hand knowledge of vaudeville, which was what the part required. Because both these things were in my bones, I felt I had an approach to the part like a homing pigeon to his coop. Disregarding the brief, Jimmy played the part his way. But each added mannerism, each improvised dance step, and each superfluous wink and nod was immediately shot down by the cigar-chomping Jed Harris. I thought I told you to play it like Lee Tracy, he growled, time and again. Bruised, Jimmy persevered, attempting to inject a little of his own personality into the role with each rehearsal. But each time, his creativity was squashed by Jed Harris. 
Finally, the night of the dress rehearsal arrived. The house was packed to the rafters with the elite of New York's theatrical world, from producers to directors, bit part players and theater owners, each with a pretty girl on their arm, and each in white tie and tails. The ship that would transport the production to London that night waited patiently in the harbor, set to sail once the after-party had given up its last guest. The week had been especially stressful for Jimmy and Bill. Since rehearsals had started, they'd moved into their own apartment so as not to disturb the Cagney family with their out-of-hours comings and goings. It had taken all their free energy to pack the contents of this apartment into several sturdy trunks and transport them to the ship. The lease had been given up on the apartment, and they'd spent the previous night sleeping on Carolyn Cagney's couch in an uncomfortable jumble. But Jimmy was troubled with more than just his sleeping arrangements. If this was to be his big break, then he wanted it to be his own. Performing a facsimile of Lee Tracy's performance would not establish him as a performer in his own right. The only way he could turn this part into his big break was to make it his own. And so, over the past month, he'd spent every waking hour and several that he should have been using for sleep to secretly rehearse his own version of the play, taking in all his experience as a dancer and as a vaudevillian. And tonight, at the final dress rehearsal, in front of a specially invited crowd of luminaries and Jed Harris himself, he was going to perform it for the very first time. Bill, fully aware of his plan, clutched his hand until it turned white as they arrived at the stage door, silently staring at their feet as they made their way through the babbling masses backstage, who all patted his shoulder and wished him well. Jimmy arrived in the wings, his costume and makeup having been applied, and bounced gently on his toes, looking intently down into the polished boards of the stage. The hum from the crowd beyond the curtain was almost deafening. The place was at capacity. He balled his hands into fists and felt the perspiration run down his knuckles. The faint glow of light beyond the curtain began to dim and the voices began to fall silent. Gazing across to the opposite wings, he saw Bill, dressed in her chorus outfit, blowing him a kiss. He winked in return and walked to the center of the stage, turning to face the still lowered curtain. The overture of the orchestra began. The curtain began to lift, and the brilliance of a thousand spotlights greeted his eyes. Each one a star, he whispered to himself. Taking a deep breath, James Cagney raised his arms and began to sing. The performance was magical. Cagney's feet danced lighter than ever, each leap into the air taking him higher than ever before, each sweep of his arm a perfect circle. He hit his marks with a watchmaker's precision. 
The songs poured like milk from his chest and into the enchanted ears of the New York audience, who swooned as he sang, as he cried, as he kissed. It was a performance for the ages, a distillation of the best elements of the Lee Tracy version, combined with the charm, the wit, and the volcanic talent of James Cagney. When it was over, he remained on the stage to take eight curtain calls, the crowd wildly applauding and calling his name, long after he'd retreated, shaking and weeping to his dressing room, where he was met by the shuddering embraces of a deliriously proud Bill and the warm applause of his fellow performers. In a fleet of limousines, the cast were transported to Jed Harris's suite, where they were plied with champagne, caviar, and cocktails. Jimmy was enthusiastically congratulated by a dozen different directors, producers, and actors, among them an enthusiastic youth named Robert Montgomery. As the party began to wind down sometime at around two, the actors were shepherded to limousines once more and driven slowly through the New York nightlife traffic to the waiting ship, which was due to leave in a few hours. As he and Bill wearily made their way out of the front door, he felt his arm being snagged. He looked back to see the face of Jed Harris. Mr. Harris said Jimmy. Thank you so much for the party. Wait a while, won't you, Jim? I have something I want to say to you in private. Jimmy followed Harris into a side room and took a seat. Harris perched himself on the edge of a desk and lit a cigar. You played it your way, then, said Harris. I did, sir. I'm sorry, but I just couldn't copy Lee Tracy. It felt wrong, like clothes that don't fit, you know? Harris inhaled deeply and blew out a thick cloud of smoke. I admire your courage, Jim. When I was starting out, I wouldn't have dared to go against the orders of my boss. It took guts, and I admire you for it. Thank you, sir. Harris smiled and nodded. You're fired, Jim. And what? You're fired, Jim. Now get out of my sight. Three hours later, Broadway set sail for London, minus the Cagneys. To add to the humiliation, Jimmy and Bill were prevented from retrieving their trunks from the hold of the ship and had to watch, broken and confused, as all their worldly possessions crossed the Atlantic without them. We were devastated, said Bill. Jimmy kept saying that it was all over, that was it, acting was finished for him. He made up his mind that night that he was going to get a job doing something else. Homeless and owning only the clothes they stood in, they retreated to the Cagney apartment, where they were informed in no uncertain terms that Carolyn Cagney had told them so. A few days later, Jimmy and Bill received some overdue good fortune. 
The contract they'd signed with Jed Harris was known as a run-of-the-play arrangement, which guaranteed them an income so long as the play was actively running, whether they were part of the cast or not. Grudgingly, Harris honoured the contract and was forced to pay a greatly reduced weekly salary to Jimmy and Bill, so long as the London show was being performed. Luckily for the Cagneys, it was as big a hit in London as it had been in New York. But Harris, still determined to punish Cagney for striking out on his own, insisted that in order to receive the income, Jimmy must serve as understudy to Lee Tracy in New York. With his pride in tatters, Jimmy solemnly attended at the theatre each day, suffering the humiliation of learning move for move and word for word, the exact details of Lee Tracy's performance, a rendering that even the most staunch of Lee Tracy's fans had to admit was far inferior to Jimmy's own. The wage, which rolled in steadily, was enough to feed the Cagney household but not enough to soothe the wounds that lay across his confidence. You have to keep trying, Bill would whisper to him each night as they lay in their single bed, across the hall from Carolyn and Jean. I'm out of air, he replied. I'm tired, and I'm out of air, Bill. You're the best this city has, and even Jed Harris knows it. You have to keep going, Jim. It was soon afterwards that a friend suggested the idea of opening a dance school with Jimmy and Bill as teachers. His years on the circuits under the tutelage of Bill Robinson and other passing legends had not only instilled in Jimmy a fevered talent, but an ability to communicate his ideas patiently. Having saved up a few hundred dollars by now, Jimmy and Bill bought a cheap house in the development known as Free Acres where a single tax was shared by all the houses on the lot, meaning that renters could purchase a place of their own so as to ease the housing shortage. It was a ramshackle estate and attracted the poorest and most deprived in the area, but at least they had a shoebox of their own. They rented a small studio in New Jersey, signed up a handful of students, and so began a new daily routine. In the mornings, they would rise early and take the trolley to New Jersey, grabbing a bite from a street corner vendor and patiently improving the footwork of their students until the light began to fail. The studio doors would be locked, and Jimmy and Bill would race back to the city on the trolley, then hop a bus to the theater, where they would sit for tedious hours on uncomfortable chairs throughout yet another performance of Broadway. As soon as the final curtain fell, they would take the subway to the 23rd Street Ferry, and from there, walk the two and a half miles uphill to reach their home. This exhaustive regimen wouldn't have been so bad, except that the dance school wasn't exactly setting the theatrical world alight. In fact, despite being generally full when it came to students, they were barely taking enough money to pay the rent on the studio and keep the lights burning. But something else was slowly happening.
Word was slowly leaking around New York about the talents of the school's teacher, who seemed to be producing some seriously talented pupils with his innovative and unorthodox teaching methods. When Agnes Morgan's review, The Grand Street Follies of 1928, began casting around for a leading man who could also dance, one name kept popping up. Cagney was called in, quickly auditioned, and given the role on the spot. We hear you're also a teacher, Morgan asked him. Jimmy blushed. You know, we've got about a dozen of your students in the show, and they all tell us how good you are. They're very kind to do so, Miss Morgan. I only mention it because we'd also like you to act as the show's choreographer. The pay was huge. But the hours were long. Jimmy quit as Lee Tracy's understudy, and with regret, closed the doors of his dance studio. But the gamble paid off. The Grand Street Follies of 1928 was a colossal hit, due in large part to Jimmy's breathtaking choreography, including an immaculate tango-tap hybrid dance at the show's finale performed by Jimmy himself that brought the house down every single night. The show ran for four months solid and finally closed at the end of the year. But by now, James Cagney's name was the toast of Broadway. So renowned had he become that when he turned up to audition for George Kelly's play, Maggie the Magnificent, he was ushered past the waiting hopefuls and straight into the office of Kelly himself, who began the conversation with, You're hired. How much do you want? I want $350 a week. Okay, fine, said Kelly. The play saw Jimmy take the role of Elwood, a street punk with an endless supply of wisecracks, appearing opposite his sassy, gum-chewing wife, Etta, played by an enchanting, wide-eyed blonde named Joan Blondell. Blondell was relatively new to the acting game, but not to the life of show business itself. Her father, Ed Blondell, had been one of the pioneers on the vaudeville circuit, and her life up until 1927 had been a tireless series of trains and planes, of suitcases and nutcases, as she, her mother Catherine, her brother Ed Jr., and her sister Gloria had trailed after their famous father as he entertained crowds the world over. Her cradle had been a property trunk, and at the age of four months old, she'd made her stage debut as the daughter of Peggy Astaire in The Greatest Love. At the age of 20, she'd won the Miss Dallas beauty pageant, and a few months later came runner-up in the very first Miss Universe competition. Now old enough to seek her own fortune, she worked as a fashion model, a circus hand, and finally, a clerk in a New York department store. In late 1927, she decided to try her hand at becoming a stage actress, and because of her name, found many doors open to her. The parts were small, but many, and by the time she was cast opposite Jimmy Cagney in Maggie the Magnificent, she had enough star power to command second billing, two places higher than Jimmy. While the play itself was something of a dud, the blazing chemistry between Cagney and Blondell was hypnotic. Here were two fireballs that sparked whenever they collided. 
The best notices for the play all centred around their new partnership. However, the production itself was usually panned and closed after just 32 performances. All was not lost, though. Among the audiences that had seen Jimmy and Joan in Maggie the Magnificent was director William Keeley, who was in the middle of casting his new play, Penny Arcade. The play tells the story of the Delano family, who ran a penny arcade on an amusement pier at Coney Island. Underneath their attraction, a bootlegging business is being operated by Mitch McCain, who recruits the youngest Delano, Harry, to see that things run smoothly. However, after a quarrel, Harry shoots McCain, and the blame is thrown upon a barker, Angel Harrigan. The mother of the family, knowing that her son is responsible for the crime, chooses to plant evidence implicating Angel, even though her daughter, Jenny, is in love with him. Cagney was offered the plum role of Harry Delano, the no-good son of the family, and Blondell was cast as his wise-cracking girlfriend, Myrtle. By now, Cagney and Blondell had become great friends. Blondell would spend many of her evenings at the Cagney house at Free Acres, where she and Bill would shimmy to the strains of a phonograph while they fixed spaghetti for dinner, Jimmy dancing in the background. It was just one of those things. After dinner, they would rehearse their scenes under Bill's critical eye, who would shriek for them to stop when they weren't getting it, leaping from the sofa to maneuver them into different places, or to suggest a different tone of voice. Now and then rings. When midnight rolled around, they'd crack open a few beers and play cards, or put on another record using bamboo needles to deaden the sound, and dance in their socks until they fell down exhausted. Just one of those fabulous flights. The question of sexual attraction between Jimmy and this effervescent, wide-eyed beauty was peculiarly inappropriate. Just one of those things. The three of them had simply sparked as fellow human beings, as performers, as New Yorkers. It was as though Jimmy and Bill had suddenly gained a new sister. Penny Arcade opened on March 11, 1930, and received an almost identical drubbing to that of Maggie the Magnificent. The general consensus was that it was a flat, rather tedious work, overlong and overwrought. But again, the scant praise it did receive belonged entirely to Cagney. The New York Herald Tribune wrote that James Cagney is all there as the good-for-nothing son. While the New York Times said that the play contains an excellent performance by James Cagney as the weakling. The play ran for only three weeks before it closed, but not before it received a visit from a rather famous patron. On the Friday before it closed, Al Jolson, perhaps the most talked about man in the world at the time, bought a ticket and gave over an evening to it. Despite the scathing reviews he'd been reading, he was enchanted with the play. And when a few days later he heard that it was shutting down, he called the producers and offered them $20,000 for the rights. Happy to recoup some of the cash they'd spent on the production, they happily sold. And a week later, 
Jolson arrived at his studio, waving his newly acquired property in their faces. They were happy to pay Jolson his price for the rights with a view to making a movie version, but there was one condition they weren't so prepared for. You can have the rights, he told the front office, but only if you cast the two kids I saw on the stage, this James Cagney and Joan Blondell. They're dynamite. By now, things had begun to break down irretrievably between Harry Warner and his younger brother Jack. To Harry, the Warner Brothers' empire was a robustly constructed business, built on a moral high ground and designed to educate as well as stimulate. To Jack, it was a playground, a toy chest filled with the most beautiful women, the fastest cars and the sunniest climates imaginable. In this land, he ruled like an emperor and indulged his every whim. Those closest to him had been cherry-picked as the most respectable yes-men that Hollywood had to offer. And if they fell out of line, even slightly, they were fired and replaced within the hour. The tales of Jack's excesses were bleeding back regularly to Harry's New York office, along with calls from his father urging him to keep Jack in line. Finally, one afternoon in 1930, he decided that enough was enough and snatched up his telephone. Give me Jack, he said when the line was answered. I'm sorry, came the reply. Mr. Warner is not available today. I said I want Jack on this line now. I know he's there. Tell him that if he doesn't get on this line, I'll fly to California tonight. The line fell silent for a minute. Harry sat himself on the edge of his desk and looked out of the window. Harry? Came a voice. Jack? If I'd known it was you, of course I would have been available. Cut the crap, Jack. Dad's been calling me. Well, how delightful for you. It would have been if he hadn't cried through half the call. What the hell is going on with you? With these girls? With these layoffs? You can't treat people this way, Jack. You can't treat Irma this way. Jack sighed. What happened to that bubbly kid who used to sing for the family? Said Harry. He's still singing, Harry. What changed? I'm not you, Harry. One day, and I hope it'll be soon, you'll realize that I'm not a piece of clay for you and Dad to mold. I've tried to tell you this before, but my life is my own. I'll live it the way I want to live it. I'll go dancing if I want to. I'll fuck who I want to. And I'll goddamn decide which phone calls I want to take. And what about your son, little Jackie, said Harry? You think a 14-year-old boy wants to read about his father in the rags? Well, I guess if he does become too disappointed in me, I could always buy another one, right, Harry? For a hundred thousand dollars? The two men stared into a featureless distance through their windows, each hearing nothing but the sound of the streets below and the rushing of blood to their head. It was a long time before Harry spoke again. 
I remember once, a long time ago, you and I and Albert and Sam at the kitchen table, and Dad, he dropped a pile of sticks in front of us, and then he picked one up and snapped it. It's weak, he said. When it's alone, it breaks easily. And then he grabbed two sticks and did the same thing, and then he picks up three sticks, and it's a little harder this time, but he breaks them. But then he picks up four sticks, and try as he might, he can't break them when they're twisted into a bundle. I remember, said Jack. Together you are strong, he said to us, Harry sighed. The line fell silent again. I don't know whether you've noticed, Harry, but there are only three sticks these days. Harry heard a click as Jack put down the phone and listened to dead air on the line. In Hollywood, Jack Warner rolled his eyes and grinned at Daryl Zanuck, who shrugged. Families, huh? Who invented the telephone anyway, said Jack. If he works here now, have him fired. Talking of fired, said Zanuck. John Adolphi over at Studio Two's been calling me all morning. Fire him then, said Jack. It's hot in here. You're hot, right? <laughs> He's not the problem. It's some punk kid fresh on the lot, refusing to say his lines because he thinks they're stupid. Fire him then. Get another kid. Want a drink? Jack poured them both a drink and cracked the window open. He paced up and down the office, heaving his shoulders as he drank. You all right, said Zanuck, and Peachy. Adolphe seems to think that if you talk to the kid, he'll get in line. Talented, apparently. Jack groaned. Fine, send him up later. I need a piss. He walked to his bathroom and pushed open the door. Zanuck listened as his zip fell and a whistled tune floated through on the air. Hey, called Jack. Come in here. I've just thought of a joke. Harry Warner had a backup plan, of course. It was a staunch Jewish tradition that a father should hand down his business to his son. And Lewis Warner, 22 years old, tall, Dark, handsome, prodigiously clever and blessed with a quiet, attractive charm, was being slowly groomed to become the king of the Warner Castle. Harry picked up the phone once more. His secretary answered. I want you to get a hold of my son, he told her. I want you to tell him to come to my office immediately. There was no reason why things couldn't be hurried along a little with Lewis. It was time for new blood at the top. But Jack Warner wasn't going anywhere without a fight. In fact, the measures that Jack Warner would take to defeat his family would surprise everyone. And eventually, they would be the death of Harry Warner. Lena Basquette woke screaming in pain. The poison had stripped her throat bare causing severe blistering in her airways, agitated by a frequent vomiting of acidic blood. Her eyes, red and sunken, tried to cry, but no tears came. A needle found its way into her arm, and slowly, a warm calm washed through her. She closed her eyes and saw Lita, small and smiling, playing with a ball, 
crying at the sight of a bandaged Sam, waving goodbye to her from her mother's porch. The little girl that she'd sold to Harry Warner for a hundred thousand dollars, and to whom she would never be a mother again. Throughout the next twenty years, she would see Lita only twice more. Lying in the hospital room, financially destitute, childless, humiliated, and racked by almost insufferable pain, Lena Basquette unsurprisingly asked herself if things could possibly get worse. But incredibly, the worst was yet to come. Jack Warner glared across his desk at the young man with the annoyingly confident smile. It was early evening in Hollywood, and he had a date with Marilyn Miller in half an hour. But the afternoon's call from Harry had left a dark stain on the day, and instead of imagining the pale limbs of his dancer date, his thoughts were hijacked by the faces of Sam, of his father, his mother, and of his son. John Adolphe says you're a pain in the ass, kid, he said. Had to rewrite a stupid line for you because it wasn't in the original play. That's correct, the man smiled. There was something odd about this boy. Something strangely attractive. And at the same time, something so completely infuriating. You know, I have a feeling about you, said Jack Warner. Are you going to give me trouble? James Cagney looked at his new boss and grinned. Mr. Warner, it'd be my pleasure. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to continue this epic story immediately, then go on over now to patreon.com slash attaboysecret or follow the link in the show notes of this episode. Hear every thrill, every drama, every heartbreak, every spellbinding moment. Unlock the secret history of Hollywood now at patreon.com slash attaboysecret or follow the link in the show notes of this episode. And thank you. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, 
Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.